0: Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is The Next Move, where we're talking about how we can build the future we want from this moment. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about the multiracial working class. And for all the talk, I worry not enough of the left is committed to engaging the multiracial working class or comes from it. And today's guest, Medisa Franco, is both of organizing and of the working class. And that and so much more make her a special organizer in a moment where many choose engaging left Twitter over the hard work of organizing everyday people. Marisa is the executive director of Mijente, a political home for Latinx and Chicanx people who seek racial, economic, gender, and climate justice. She is a fighter, she's a truth teller, an old school debater, and she's a mom. The Latinx community has been hit especially hard by COVID-19. According to the New York Times, Latinx people in the United States are three times as likely to contract the virus as white people, three times. Those disparities are showing up in big cities and also in very rural parts of the country. Marisa and I talked about the layers of impact that COVID-19 is having on the Latinx community and how she's working to make space for many different voices in the fight. Marisa is an organizer who loves the craft of organizing and she's constantly pushing it to make it more impactful. I love that in an organizer. how did you become an organizer?
1: I like to think of it and I tried all the different approaches to social change. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did student activism. I did a lot of service provision. I was doing service work with children whose moms were locked up. And I just would see like how it was such a setup when the moms would get out. Like I remember I told my boss, like we, we need to not just do like craft sessions with the kids and their moms, like what what the kids most need is for their moms to get stable once they get out. And she said to me, like, that's not what the money's for, you know. And I was like, well, damn, we're paying, you know, Michael's craft stores, you know, damn light bill. And like that money could be going to helping these 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 women get on their feet. And so yeah. And then I did a hill uh internship one summer and I was just an abject right. failure and <laughs> and so just kind of stumbled on like community organizing and the thing that really spoke to me from jump was the idea that people directly getting a chance to address problems they're facing and so I ended up like scouring the internet for a organizing program and found one and that really just kind of whisked me off and you know many many years later I'm still here
0: I love that you tried everything else <laughs> you're like, well, there's one thing left organizing maybe, maybe this is it. I want to like test one thing with you and see like how this kind of lines up with what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Like I'm kind of operating off an assumption we're in a, maybe even early stages of an intense 30 year reckoning
1: Absolutely. to basically
0: become, you know, an America we haven't been yet and it's gonna be like we're gonna have like these amazing beautiful moments of progress and we've had some of them and then we're almost always gonna have a backlash and we'll progress and we'll backlash and on the other end it could be if we play our cards right quite beautiful and it's gonna be brutal kind of feel like we all need to buckle up for that and, and and declare ourselves signing up for that how's that line up with how you're thinking about things and seeing things
1: It's absolutely the way I view it. I mean, the country is changing. Demographic social cultural change is happening. And that is producing and will produce a backlash that we've seen before in the history of this country. But it's amidst grotesque economic polarization. And Mm -hmm. when you have economic polarization, you have political power polarization, and not to mention climate crisis. So in some ways, it's like we've seen this before. And in some ways, this is going to be unprecedented. I think that it's not a coincidence that that Trump ascended when he did. And that speaks to what we face. And it is a reckoning and it is going to be a battle. And I, I don't know if you feel this way, but like, I feel like the last four years, like the virality of flashpoints, the virality of like mm. openings and also attacks has just been dizzying. Like, I've never mm. felt anything like it. I remember a couple weeks ago, like, I I think it was during all the George Floyd protests. And I remember I was driving to pick up my son and I just like was listening to a podcast or something and I just started crying. Um, Mm -hmm. And there was this like, kind of like, okay, Marisa, like, come on. And it was (laughs) this like, this is going to be really hard. This is going to feel like uncomfortable in a way you're not familiar with. There is this feeling of like a reckoning in the air and the stakes are incredibly high because of the conditions we're in. This this moment is a product of 30 years of neoliberal policy um, yeah. and, and the ongoing policy around race in this country and structural racism. So we have our work cut out for us, but yes, there's ultimately a feeling of possibility at the same time. Yeah,
0: I yeah, totally agree. So building a new organization, <laughs> so hard, so painful. Signing up for it is a big commitment. Like, why me, gente?
1: I was doing a lot of anti-deportation work and, you know, was part of the immigrant rights movement. There was this point where we broke through and got some wins. And so it was a crossroads of, in certain respects of where do we go from here within the immigrant rights movement. And I'm the daughter of immigrants, but I was born in the United States. I identify as Chicana. And Simultaneously, I had been looking at you know, what the situation was for Chicanex people, for, for Latinx people broadly in the United States. And, you know, in my own family, you know, I have family members who have been killed, who have been locked up, who have not been able to attain education or training that allows them to have stable, dignified work. You know, almost everybody either has high blood pressure or diabetes. And when I looked around, there was nothing. There was nothing really speaking to them. There was nothing acknowledging it. You know, people just kind of like took it and and moved on how they could. And so there was this part to me, it was like, how do these things relate to each other? And so it started to come together. It was like almost like a puzzle that started like putting pieces. And it was like, oh, you know, the future of the immigrant rights movement is like one of the things we have to do is start building power. We have to build alliances and the typical kind of alliances that were sought we really trying to convince white Americans that immigrants are good or, we're, you know, in your interest.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: um, and right. like, what, what does it mean if we are building that very intentionally in communities of color? And then on the other side, it was like the Latinx community is growing exponentially. We will be scapegoated. We, that will produce a backlash and we don't have any infrastructure to show for it. And also this idea that Latinx people are going to be immediately progressive is a fantasy. It's not going to happen by default. Um, you have to organize for it. You have to build it. And so gente really was that like seed of really taking like the assessment of what was happening in the immigrant rights movement and in the broader Latino Chicano community. Can we be different? Can we do something different? Can we create infrastructure that will produce leaders that will speak to the needs of our time that won't replicate the mistakes of the past? How can we show up? So that was the, the the crux of it. And I that was not my vision for myself to be kind of heading up something like this. But it felt like I don't know who else is going to do it. And I don't know what's going to happen if we don't try.
0: Yeah. Can you say more about this assumption of like Latinx will be progressive and any other you think kind of myths or misconceptions about Latinx folks in the U.S.?
1: But I think it's super important to name like region really matters, country of origin really matters, immigration and how long people have been in the country. Like you can't messaging or campaigns or organizing pitches that might speak to you know a Tejano living in South Texas is really different from a Puerto Rican in the Bronx vis-a-vis a person from Venezuela that just moved here, immigrated here two years ago living in in El Doral, Florida. And I think that sometimes it's such an afterthought. Communities of color are such an afterthought and there's such a lack of investment that those things aren't tested, therefore they're not recognized, therefore we're not innovating on how to best reach people and engage them. And that really relates to the piece about will people be progressive or not. One of the things that the Latinx community has really ingested is that American dream mythology, the idea that you know pick yourself up by your bootstraps I think it's a lot of the internalized shame um, of people mm-hmm. have and like the the history in people's countries of origin and those countries relationship to the United States really impacts. But then on a deeper, deeper level, like on a colonization mm-hmm. level, I mean, there's there's just it's a motherfucker. <laughs> like to be told from the time that you're a kid that you are of a people that lost. And people really take that in in very different ways. Some people say, well, I'm going to be super prideful about my history. And other people say, well, I just want to be part of the winning team. Can I be down? And so all these things are a mix that create a situation where, particularly when you don't have community organizing infrastructure, particularly when people don't have examples or models, it's not clear which way they're going to swing. So those are just some of the things I think off the top that I think are some of the reasons why it's important to not assume that one of the fastest growing populations is immediately gonna swing the political kind of balance of forces, if you will, immediately we're gonna have to work for it.
0: Your point around colonization and kind of how that becomes internalized remind me of one of the Mijente principles um, is that we acknowledge and value that part of the work is to recover, unlearn and remember. Like, can you say more about that? That really struck me as super powerful.
1: Yeah. I mean, you probably know me from my history, George. I am not the touchy feely type, (laughs) but there is something really, really compelling. And maybe because it's like, I feel it or I understand it is like that shame that I was talking about. I remember I was in fifth grade. And I've been voting for my mom since probably then, and maybe before. My mom would be like, "Who do you want me to vote for?" And I remember I vote. I had her vote for George, the first Bush. And later on, I thought about that, and it was like this period where I remember being really. I did not like for my dad to speak to me in Spanish. I remember he told me he's like, "Unless you speak to me in Spanish, don't speak to me." I am so grateful that he did that, and I always remember that. But you really have to grapple with shame and like how you grapple with being different is something I think that everyone kind of has to face. And you you come up with different answers at different points in your life. And then sometimes we just don't know our history. There's a level of like amnesia, the way that like the survival mechanisms, like what people had to do to survive under occupation or under colonialism or under conquest many, many generations back was oftentimes to distance oneself from what was kind of seen as bad or seen as the thing that would be dangerous for you and that is oftentimes like what is indigenous like our indigenous ancestry and our black ancestry and so you have that being literally passed on to people and that survival mechanisms those coping mechanisms that are very complicated but they've been passed on because in some cases they have worked um are the things that we have to kind of unlearn or investigate Mm -hmm. interrogate like what is that about and then there's the remembering piece which is the ways that we've disassociated that we've gone numb that we don't know who we are and we don't know where we came from is part of the remembering and i think like i really think a lot about like class stand you know and organizing Mm -hmm. i really see it as like a close cousin to that is like who do you come from like what are you about like who are your people if we don't address that piece of how people are relating to themselves, they'll fight, but they're going to have one hand tied behind their back. Right. Or, or they're going to have like that little voice telling them they're not good enough. And so it's a strategy. And I think it's something to lift up of like, how do we best prepare ourselves and come into the fights that we must fight the righteous fights with a feeling of deservedness and connectedness and wholeness. So.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about COVID-19. Like, COVID-19 has hit the Latinx community especially hard. I mean, look at places where it's like three times the number of cases of white folks, not just in cities, but in lots of like small towns and rural communities. Like what's happening?
1: I'm I'm in Arizona, so this is definitely a place where it's spreading like wildfire. You know, I think what we've seen with COVID is that it's shining a light on what already exists. So communities that don't have access to health care, communities that have real significant like public health threats and conditions that that there's nobody really paying attention to that are the communities that have been you know, hardest hit. They're, they're essentially predisposed. And then you add to that the complete negligence of the federal government. And in some cases, state and local governments, it's not a surprise that we're facing it. But just so to name, I think many Latinx people are in the service industry. And you know, mm-hmm. have been deemed essential workers. So it's, you know, kind of whiplash because you go back a year, these are called low wage, low skill, kind of mm-hmm. throwaway jobs that no, you know, nobody really respects. But then all of a sudden they're essential workers, but they have none of the protections to show for it. Then you have Latinx people are I think the most uninsured population in the country. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks are scared or don't really want to go to the doctor. Um, even if they did have health care. But then you have the question of documentation status. So this is the impacts of, you know, an enforcement first brutal regime by ICE that has made people feel like they can't go get tested, they can't go get medical care. And one thing I think that the pandemic has shown us is that we are only as safe, we are only as healthy as the most vulnerable among us. And despite the fact that like, you know, so many decades of public policy and political rhetoric has told us otherwise, we are seeing that now. And that is like the the ripple effect impacts of these policies and the posture of these agencies and institutions.
0: If there was one meaning that, like, majority of Americans would make of COVID-19 and its disparate impact on the Latinx community, is that the meaning you'd hope? Is there more you'd want to say about that?
1: I mean, I think there's something about the COVID stuff that makes... It makes you kind of see the very tenuous nature in which our lives are held together. And so it is a moment where we should be really taking the time to see each other and people that you normally don't think about, that you don't think about where your food comes from, that you don't think about Mm -hmm. how your clothes got made. You don't have to think about any of it in this moment. I I think it's incumbent upon all of us to not look away and not only just not look away and acknowledge, but actually support a change of course.
0: Going back to what you said earlier about kind of internalized shame related to colonization and other different forms of oppression, what new meaning might the Latinx community make about itself kind of as we move through this pandemic?
1: So I think there is a story that is told. It's very familiar. I kind of consider it like a mashup of Catholic guilt and shame <laughs> and like American dream bootstrap narrative. That's put your head down, work really hard, don't ask questions, and you'll be able to make it. And hey, if your life circumstances or your work isn't necessarily what you want, you're doing it for your children. Your children will live better than you. That is a very, very common story. And so as a result, the kind of prototypical next person, and sometimes it's very kind of caricatured and it's just seen as like a Mexican, is, you know, this, this essentially an economic refugee who means you no harm and he's coming to serve you and, you know, that kind of thing, which, you know, is not the reality of all of the community and who it is. That story right now is being obliterated by Trump and Trumpism, meaning it's going from the humble servant, the humble worker, to the illegal invader. And so Mm. in my eyes, the community has, you know, a choice. There is no being on the sidelines will keep you safe in these times. And I think this is decades long. The opportunity we have, though, is what is a story that is rooted in a collectivity, a story that Mm. is very aware of lineage and history, um, and a story that, that is inclusive of all of who we are and that unapologetically bucks their respectability politics that actually haven't benefited our community in some total. And so what does it look like to have a different story that is told, that's understood, and that's passed on in the community from this time? Um, is that a silver lining of a very very difficult, very painful period where where there's been tremendous harm committed upon the mm-hmm. community? And I, th- I think there's, that's the opportunity. And I think really a lot of the organizing that we do is like, what is a different narrative? What is a different way of talking about ourselves and understanding ourselves? Because the Trump narrative is a threat, a very significant threat. But we can't just go back to that original narrative because that had significant flaws that I think has held the community back and set and position the community in a way that is not it's it does not fulfill its potential to be a formidable force in a multiracial, multinational movement for justice and liberation Mm. and, like, you know, economic, racial, gender, and climate justice.
0: Amen. What do we need to do next?
1: I think it's incredibly important in this time, contribute, don't perform. There is so Mm -hmm. much performance and, like, blah, 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 blah online. Like, how how do we think about like um how am I contributing concretely and not showing off and performing and that I'm the smartest, most wittiest, blah 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 person online? Second, <laughs> let's let's be really honest with each other about what we don't know, and make offerings about the things we do know. I really find it refreshing when I talk to someone that like I think they're like oh they're so much smarter and like have everything figured out when they're like I'm really grappling with this. What would it look like if we did that more? And then, third is whether wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever your role is in advocacy work or political work, make a fucking play. You are an expert of where you work. You're an expert of the community you live in. You're an expert if you work in a particular institution. Make a play. It doesn't mean you have to like tip it over the finish line, or it doesn't, you know, we're not going to win and fix everything overnight. To me, it's also the victory is having people think about what plays they would make because then it turns all of us into organizers and you know, subversives and agitators, which are very positive things to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. Thanks so much for doing this. No problem. Thanks it's so much perfect. for having me. That <laughs> was perfect. A lot to think about. Yes, a lot to do. Yeah. Part of the work is to recover, unlearn and remember. Marisa's point about unlearning conclusions of colonization and being colonized as a sign of weakness or losing, I'm never going to forget her saying that. I keep thinking about the weight of constantly trying to fit in, and so many weights from our nation's history that people of color across the board have to hold. Weights that many of us, me included, we can only try and imagine, try to understand, and then hopefully do something about it. And it feels like the unlearning the Marisa Mihente are talking about, like that's something that applies to each and every one of us. I've been thinking a lot about masculinity and what I was taught growing up about needing to be tough, not showing any weakness, not expressing needs. Like these ideas serve me in one way, but big picture, not so much. We all have unlearning to do. And what that looks like for each of us, it's gonna be different. For many, it means unlearning damn near everything we learn in school about American history. And so much more. And finally, Medisa challenged us to make a play. Do something. Take a risk. Get in the arena. And do it now. There is just too damn much at stake to be on the sidelines. Make a play. You can learn more about the work that Marisa and Mijente are doing and what you can do at peoplesaction.org slash next move. And despite my misgivings about left Twitter, you can find Marisa on Twitter at Marisa underscore Franco. This podcast was produced by People's Action and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Melissa Lowe. Production manager is Shelby Sandlin. Bye now.